0: An episode that is our normal format and where we interview some amazing Asian-Americans. June's been a funky month. Uh, June's been an introspective month, a time for us to think about the grander picture of what society means, what equality means. So we've decided to take a pause from some of our normal interviews. And as you know, uh, we focus our efforts on having conversations around Black Lives Matter and uh, spent a lot of time and energy this month reading doing the readings of the Letters for Black Lives. Today's June 30th, and as we finish out Pride Month, I wanna share this particular conversation I had with David Kim. Uh, David Kim is a Korean American uh, running for Congress here in Los Angeles in Congress District uh, 34. And in this interview with him, you're gonna hear about his uh, early childhood memories his first childhood memory being something that most children should never even have to remember, um, how he's progressed through life, and ultimately sharing with us a very personal story of his coming out journey uh, to his parents, deciding to run to represent not only the constituents of uh, CA34, but for all Americans. This was a tough interview for me to do. And tougher still um, to listen to a few times during the editing process. but And it's long. um, But I encourage you to please take the time to listen to it, to get to know David. Stories like David's don't get shared too often because these stories are tough to tell. So I hope you enjoy this conversation um, as much as I did having it uh, with David. Without further ado, here now is my conversation with David Kim. Hey everybody, welcome to The Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan. Wherever you are, and whenever you may be listening to this, we wish you all the health and happiness and safety as we go through these challenging times together. We're recording this right at the end of June. And had we done things right the first time around, right now is about the time that we should have been going back to life as normal. Um, And as it stands today, on June 26th, um, a couple states are reclosing some of the things that they opened prematurely. So as we head into the summer and as we think about what life may look like going forward, all we can do is take precautionary measures, keep our distance, stay home, wear a mask. And we really, really hope that you are staying safe and that your family and your loved ones continue to stay safe. Um, And I think this is such an interesting and amazing conversation to have with our guest today. Um, A lot of these policies, a lot of these rules about reopening and healthcare concerns are, are made by people that we put into office. And sometimes we go, how the hell did that person win an election to have that much power um, to make decisions about businesses opening or public public health and safety concerns? And yet we don't care enough as much as we should, particularly in the Asian American community about politics. Yes, we get it. Some of our parents came here and they are always going to see themselves as not American. My parents see themselves as Koreans living in America and many of our parents do too. But for those of us who are either born here or spent a significant chunk of our lives here who are educated here, we have no excuse but to at least participate in the civic process and to vote. And if you are bold, as bold, and as daring, and as confident as our guest here is today, you might actually even decide to run for Congress. So without further ado, it brings me so much honor and excitement to welcome David Kim to the show. Hi, David.
1: Hello, Jerry. Thank you so much for having me on here.
0: I'm excited. I, I, I have been waiting to talk to you uh ever since I you, you came on my radar and I it was a a Facebook post that a friend had shared, um, and I don't remember who that friend is and we have a lot of friends within the community and I was like, Holy crap, there's another Korean American guy running for Congress here in LA. And I don't think I'll ever get I don't think we as a community will ever get you know or, or this never gets old for the community that when somebody that looks like you and looks like me runs for something in the public sphere even before we find out anything about who they are or what they stand for you get a little excited because particularly in a very public facing political um, game or political world these are things that we were not necessarily encouraged or even let to believe that we were allowed to do or thought that we could do so um then I started learning about your platform and you know, I, I was on the Yang Gang train for a while, and I was like, "Oh my God!" Like this is a guy that I really want to get to know, and I think is going to be uh, right for our community because the district that you are running in, the 34th district in the state of California, is home to Koreatown, which, while called Koreatown, is perhaps one of the most diverse places in California, and the district also represents downtown and Echo Park and some part- northern places, and so. Um, Really, really excited to learn about you today and to hear about your journey in America. Um, You're a lawyer. um, You've worked in the entertainment industry. So you are not a, you know, political or politician um, by birth. And um, maybe that's a job title that you may not be want to be called, um, but at least somebody who makes change and cares about the people. So um, tell us about the Kim family's journey to America. Um, How did you guys end up here to where did you guys move? And share with us a little bit about the early years of David's life.
1: Yes, Um, I I, just to start with our district, I decided to run for office in mid-fall last year, a little late uh, due to the fact of deep realizations I had um, in terms of our people and masses are suffering financially, they have two to three jobs to make ends meet month to month. Uh, we have 40 plus thousand unhoused brothers and sisters living in just the city of Los Angeles alone. We have politicians and elected officials having the FBI investigate and raid their homes because of corrupt developer relationships and corporate relationships in that And so, although I was working at the time, I had just gotten my dream job working as a high-level legal executive of an entertainment company that's pretty well-known worldwide and, and et cetera, I was really sad. I was sad because the people I knew, the family members I knew, the friends I knew, the neighbors I knew, they were still working, hustling two to three jobs to make ends meet. I myself, I mean, I had... I still have over $200,000 in law school loans that still have yet to be paid off because during the years I lived in Los Angeles, I also had to hustle. And so there weren't opportunities for me to go ahead and pay off that debt. But then for me, it was a it was a matter of decision making where it kind of came down to, well, if you just hold out five years, 10 years in this job, you'll be you'll be debt free. You'll pay off your law school loans. You don't have to worry but then for me, I was deeply sad because masses of our people are still financially struggling myself included. I mean forget about me, but what about them? So it was this urgency that led me to throwing my hat into the race and, and running for office. So and what's what's particularly interesting about our district, Jerry is our district it does cover Koreatown like what you said. Koreatown it's it's played a very influential role in the Los Angeles area and the shaping of its culture. And the people and, and the restaurants as well <clears throat> as a secondary thing. And in that regard, it's and there's there's also other Asian communities. So we have little Bangladesh. We have Filipino town. We have Chinatown. We have little Tokyo. So all of these other Asian communities are also in the district. But we yet haven't. And not to say that we're we're talking about racial politics or anything, but for these other communities, they've been neglected in a lot of different ways. And so although I'm not, I think true equality is one where we're not looking at anybody's race or whatnot because we're all one race and it's humanity, but these other communities have been marginalized in a lot of ways. And so I do have that deep-rooted connection to that. And so um, for, for for I know the Korean community, it's a, it's a big thing in the sense of having somebody that looks like them run for office as well and also make that attempt because like you and I know, politics isn't a traditional area to go into at all and um, right. most definitely is not and so for when i had made this decision my asian parents were like oh you should just stay in your job five ten more years you're making all this money and you should pay off your law school loans that's stupid why are you ready for office but then eventually mm-hmm. when i made the, my decision they eventually embraced it and there's a whole story behind that too uh but my my parents initially they just like those who are listening, your parents um, immigrated to the States to to pursue the American dream, to to have their children live better lives than they did. And so my parents, they immigrated in 1983 um, after my brother was born. I have one older brother. He's older by 11 months. We're Siamese
0: twins in a way. Ooh, me too. Isn't that oh, crazy? Really? Yeah. 11 are you the months older months or younger? Days? I'm
1: the younger. Oh, I'm the younger too.
0: 11, 11 months and six days.
1: Oh, wow. Um, I think ours is 11 months and 9 days.
0: So um, when I was old enough to figure out what that meant, holy crap. Like, yeah. you know, guys, what the hell, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, I thought I was the only one. That is, yeah. But, yeah, but he's June and I'm May, so most people don't ever, like, put the two and two together. Um,
1: that's interesting. He, he's, my brother's May and then I'm April. Okay. So. <laughs> But we're actually both Tauruses. Are you guys? I don't know if you're no, into.
0: Stars, uh, you? I'm a Taurus. I don't know what Jay is. Okay, got uh, whatever. It. So whatever the middle of the of June is. is. Yeah.
1: Got it. Yeah. So, so my parents. They. <laughs> that's very. Good. I actually. What's What's even? I don't know if he's actually a mutual friend of ours. I don't know if you know a friend named Albert Kim. He's an attorney in New York. Uh, he went to Diamond Bar High School.
0: I'm not. Sh- I know many Albert Kims. Not sure if I remember this particular one.
1: Okay. So he actually, he and I actually went to law school together and it so turned out that we actually went to college as well. Um, and he's a year above, of above my year in college, but he and I have the same birthday. Um, and then our brothers, so he, he's one year older than me, but I have the same birthday as him. Uh His brother is the same year as me, but his birthday is my brother's birthday.
0: So it's the same gap.
1: Yeah, so it's the same gap, but uh, same birthdays crazy. as well. So that, that was kind of crazy. But but yeah, in any case, 11 months, we fought a lot, <laughs> my brother and I, uh, I. So I was born and raised in the States right after my parents immigrated. Mm. So my dad was a pastor in Korea, pastor of like a huge church. Uh, he was focused on the college kids. So he was at mm. this church called uh, Sunghee Methodist Church in Incheon. And he was connected to my mom through uh, sort of like a blind date arrangement where one of his church members had said, Pastor Kim, I know this beautiful lady. She's a pianist at our church in the other adult service, and she's single. You guys should connect. And like <laughs> that church member connected my mom and dad, and then, and then we have my brother and me. Um, so they immigrated to the States. My dad, he first immigrated to, he took us all to Arizona. I was still in my mom's womb. And then I was mm. born, and, born and raised um, for the first five years of my life in Arizona, in this small town called Sierra Vista, 40 minutes outside of Tucson. And there my dad was a pastor to uh, a church uh, where the the wives were Korean and then the husbands were in the military base um, in really? Sierra Vista. And so it was a Korean-speaking conversation. And so my dad started learning his English through their husbands. And so it was a very – so it was a very – it was a very familiar church environment that we continued to grow up with throughout our lives. So then at age five, my dad was called to serve at a, at a bigger church in Tacoma, Washington. So we moved to Tacoma, Washington. Age five, um, we started going to uh, a new school. We got very familiar, plugged in. Uh, we stayed there uh, up until, I think, age 16 sophomore year. Then we moved to Northern California because my dad wanted to plant a church in Northern California. And after going then to, I think, what was my third high school, by that time, I'm like sort of freaked out because for me, after being plugged into such a community, like with your childhood friends all through elementary, middle school, and then high school, um, And then to to go to a different new high school, then to go to a different new high school, I think by the time I went to my third high school in San Jose, I was probably traumatized, but I didn't realize it at the time. Now looking back, I think I was, or I was definitely. Now I remember those moments where um, I was traumatized to the point where, because I think, and this is where our tendencies as human beings is when we feel that we're in danger our amygdala turns on and we're in this fright flight or freeze mode so back in the days it would come on when we were cavemen and like we were afraid of being attacked or eaten but nowadays our amygdala acts up when we feel like when we fear social judgment or or Mm -hmm. being that new kid and so i think that triggered me a lot and so i even remember days where um i would eat lunch by myself and not tell anybody that I was eating lunch by myself but then and then during class or during break times like I, I'm supposed to be the loud and funny guy and that's what I would do and so nobody would ever have thought that David would eat lunch by himself but I did because I was so scared of people judging me and and all of that Um, so it's it's definitely something kind of as a progression that I've seen throughout kind of high school, college, adult life growing in the sense of I'm not sure if it's rooted in the sense of growing up as a pastor's kid. The number one thing that we were told to do is if a kid hits you, you just need to let them hit you more. Don't fight back because the moment you fight back, then 50 families are going to leave our church. So you should not do that. And so there was a time even where, like where my brother, this, my brother and this other kid at church, they were spar, they were horse playing and um, my brother accidentally hit him where like in the face, but it was, it was completely child's play. Like they're kids, they're playing around. That incident took out like 80 families out out of the church because they said that the pastor's kid was evil and rude and needed to learn how to respect people and not hit people. And so so I think a lot of that was just shoved down our necks and like, be quiet. Like you have no voice. Do like, and so I think it was just, Whenever like we went to church, people would complain to our parents and say hey your your second son wasn't bowing ninety degrees to me. he only shook his head, and so then our dad would whip us for that for not bowing ninety degrees and like um there was there was actually one moment Jerry and since I agreed to share all and tell all, there was this one moment <laughs> there was this one moment I distinctly remember and and I know that like for for some people, they ask each other like what's your earliest memory that you have?" One of my earliest memory is this girl, this church member's girl, she was jumping around on tables and suddenly the table that she was jumping on fell beneath her. And so she like sprained her ankle and she couldn't walk anymore and she was crying. And then suddenly the whole adult service, like we're all kids. I think we're like four years old, five years old, six years old. And I don't know whoever was watching over us. I don't know where he or she was. Um, Um, At the time, because it was just such a traumatic experience, Mm. but the whole adult service stopped like a hundred plus adult members started coming down. Suddenly they're like, what happened? What happened? And then she pointed her fingers at me and I didn't do anything. And I'm just standing there. And my dad, without even listening to me and I'm screaming, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. He takes me to his office. He puts like paper over his glass door, glass portion Uh of his door And then he starts beating me without even listening to what I had to say, because for Korean pastors, especially whatever their church members say is the Bible is the word because they need to do everything that they can to prevent that church member from leaving because, and I'm going to be real, Jerry, because church members pay tithe and offering. So when church members leave, that's offering going out as well. Um, And so for pastors, it's also a startup and a business. So for his kid to mess that shit up, no, that's not happening on my dad's end. And on my end, I'm like, dude, you're not even listening to me. You don't even right. know what happened. Mm. And so I, my earliest memory is just seeing a pool of blood. I'm like four or five years old, and I'm just getting hit for something I didn't even do.
0: Aye, aye. And so
1: that, I think that's sort of what I had grow in me as sort of this... Um, this bitterness that grew towards my dad. And I know that for us Asian or some of us, Asian American males, our relationships with our dads are hard anyway, but then coupled with this whole pastor thing where he believes everything a church member says over his wife and over his sons, it became very difficult. And that's what we had to deal with growing up. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was it was definitely um, a very unique uh, upbringing and, and growth in that and and stepping into that and and as of recently, um, I think uh, that's why per- perhaps um, I might have during some seasons of my life completely go like way I'm not Korean, I'm not Asian, I'm white. <laughs> there were those moments that I did have. Uh, To be honest, uh, throughout my upbringing, so so it's it's not a surprise, but but just to kind of see the different developments is also just good to learn and and to really realize and take lessons from.
0: But when you were growing up from zero to five, um, I I had to look up where um, Sierra Vista was on a map because I wasn't familiar with the town. Um, It's like a border town. Uh, Closest Mexican city is Nogales, and even though the base is there, I imagine that there's probably not as many or not very many at all, um, Korean or even Asian Americans. Um, from what you shared with me, the congregation was mostly mixed families. Um, so from, from very early on, like, did you get to see very many older kids that look like me and you and were there out, I guess when you're the pastor's kid, the, the, the way that they treat you is, is always veiled or, you know, is, is filtered in some way, shape or form. But, um, even at that early age, like were there kids that you could look up to and, and what sort of influences that you gained through that?
1: Yeah, I think, well, in regards to that, when growing up from age zero to five, because it's such an early age, you're not able to distinguish whether or not this person looks like me or doesn't look like me that's at that true. early of an age, or, or at least for me, I, I couldn't, it wasn't, it wasn't until later on during the later elementary years that I, that that became more real to me when people, because by age five, we had moved to Washington state. And that's when mm-hmm. I realized, Oh, I look different because these kids that are, That I have no idea who they are. They're in the car next to me, waiting at a red stoplight, doing this to me. And I'm like, why the fuck are they doing that to me? (laughs) Or like every stoplight that we were at, Jerry, it was a common thing for me and my brother. It was so common. It was like an everyday type of thing. My brother would be like, hey, look to your side. And I'm like, no, I don't want to (laughs) look. Because there Uh, would just be kids doing this. And then their parents would be sitting in the front looking at what they're doing. And they're like, They're just, they're not, they're not even telling their kids to stop it. They're just looking and saying, oh, that's cute. But it's like, it was that kind of um, reality that we had that made, that forced us to wake up and realize, oh, we look different. Okay, got it. Um, But in regards to, I think because it was such an early age, I didn't really notice it that much over there because also in Washington state, I think with that being Arizona, there were definitely no other um, kids that looked like us. Mm. that we grew up with it wasn't yeah. until we moved to uh, Tacoma Washington that we started to see a little more and and where we uh became aware of that Koreanness and realized we were different so now thinking of it I remember in second and third grade somebody mentioning how my lunch smelled and mm. I came home and started yelling at my mom and I was like why did you give me that food And I was such a horrible kid. And then she started packing like American sandwiches and like, and trying to help, help me fit into the molds. And, um, and I remember those moments and, then and I know that like, there was a moment even during sixth grade because my parents spent a lot of their time within the Korean American church community. They didn't have the time and freedom to go take English classes because they were still, they were doing like, 20 30 Bible studies a day from like 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. and then come home and so they didn't really have a time to to learn English and so I remember even during the PTA meetings and whatnot I would tell my mom and dad not to come because I was embarrassed that they couldn't speak English and during six and I and I cried to this day every every time I write my mother's day card but in sixth grade there was um, I, I had forgotten my lunch or something and my mom had come to our middle school to find me. And my friends were telling me, hey, David, I think your mom's looking for you, your mom's looking for me. The first thing I think of isn't like, oh, I'm thankful that my mom brought that for me. It was like, how dare she go to my friends and tell them that she's my mom and all of this. And because for me, I think where I learned that from, because monkey see, monkey do. And I hate to share the secrets with my parents but my parents too like they're genuine people like my mom i've learned so much from her she's like a mother Teresa to me but they also as being the asian people that they are and leading a church they had to save face a lot so Mm. so all of the saving face and looking prim and proper like everything was cool on the outside i learned from monkey see monkey do from my parents And so I wanted to maintain that to like maintain this image and appearance that I had. So for my mom to come to my middle school and just show that she does not know a single word of English, I was embarrassed by that. So I went to my locker where she was waiting and I yelled at her and I said, mom, why are you here? You can't even speak English. This is so embarrassing for me. And then I started crying and then I left her there and then I came home and then my mom was in her room and she was She said she was sick. She wasn't sick. She was very heartbroken that I had done that to her. Um, And so she was just in her room all night telling me, telling me, my brother and my dad, that she was just sick. But just kind of thinking about that and and realizing, oh, man, if I could rewind time, I would rewind time to those moments so that I could say, mom, I love you, but I don't know how to deal with my feelings and my emotions and all of these protection mechanisms that I have in my head to deal with this right now. And, And that's what I tell her. Um, and of course she understands and and we've had our ups and downs, even as an adult because I recently came out to them in um, two thousand seventeen or eighteen so so yeah, we've had our ups and downs and and it's been a it's been a great ride though and um I, and i've I've come to really embrace my asian American heritage even more through my parents um because they do have good values that they passed on to us
0: I think it wasn't. It isn't typically until many of us are in our 30s, um, whether that's the average time that like people start getting married or like you've been an adult for a certain amount of time where you know what it feels like to be an adult and um, you start to really understand the perspective of the parents because you're definitely not alone. No way in the embarrassment of parents, right? Like um, trying to minimize information, trying to minimize interactions, trying to almost, you know, do the bare minimum. Um, you know, some guests share stories of like, drop me off a couple blocks away. I don't want you, you know, my friends to see you or, um, you know, and then whether it was through church as it, in your case, or for better opportunities or, um, as refugees for so many of our other friends, like, The idea that in our age now, if you and I had to pick up our shit and go to a different country and start from zero, we don't do any better than they did. And if that doesn't humble you, like think harder, right? Because, and it's not like we, you and I, having lived in New York City and in California where it's diverse and We're educated and we have networks. Our parents grew up in post-war Korea in a very homogeneous, dictator, you know, president environment, and then to be like, all right, go, right, and at least in my case, we moved to Fullerton, which is like Korea light, but you went (laughs) to like almost Mexico, right? Like, and 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 so we have to give our parents so much credit for doing what they did and. Our frustration that they weren't being American enough for them was, don't force me to be somebody who I'm not. Because the idea that they could move away from Korea to start life anew in America was not something that they were raised to believe it would be a possibility, right? So, you know, I I think um, it's, it's something I struggle with still just the proper communication and the frustrations. Um, I mean, as, as a parent where you're just like, you know, you don't want to be offensive to your mom because she raised you and you turned out okay. But sometimes you have differences of opinion on how you should raise your kids. Right. And, but it's their grandkids. So they spill the shit out of them as all grandparents (laughs) do Um, or, or whatever it is. Right. Like, I don't know, even in my thirties, like whenever I change jobs, it's like, Oh shit, what's, i going to think. And it's like, dude, you have your own kids. Like, why is that the first thing? But it's that's still a part of how I think it's still wired in me that, like, I will never stop loving my mom in the deepest way. But I also wish, as you just shared with us, like, that they were different in some ways. Yeah. And it's not, you know, I I don't think you would have had it your way where, like, obviously, when you're a kid, you don't have the emotional maturity to be like, oh, I love you. Thank you for bringing my lunch. But at the same time, like, and especially it gets trickier, too, when, um, as it is in your parents' case, their profession is in, you know, uh, in church. So priority or prioritization of things or, you know, um, believing that doing Bible study or tending to church members' needs is more important than, you know, uh, prioritizing your own emotional development or emotional needs or even happiness. That's perhaps not agreeable to a lot of people but you should be able to have enough empathy to understand where they came from um especially as it in your case because that was actually their livelihood right like as you mentioned church is a business too and revenue needs to come in for the thing to work right um and and so that's you know i mean i see your pattern of it's just it's hard And, and seattle probably wasn't the way it is back then as it is today um Probably, probably not as many koreans and and then whatnot um talk to me about college because you, you go to cal um cal the, you know the liberal bastion of free thinking you know everybody knows what cal's known for right like w- w- was that a I guess what what parts of that college experience was eye-opening for you in helping you discover who you were um away from home for the first time in a place that was accepting of a lot of different ideas and things. Um, and was it in college that you wanted to pursue law school? Because you went to law school shortly after undergrad. Um, share with us a little bit about your college years, David.
1: Yeah, for sure. Before um, before I do that, I feel, and I'll, I'll I'll share this part of my life and upbringing um, with due respect for my for my father. I think what prevented me also from realizing that from from being able to understand from their perspective was because of all the domestic violence that my brother and i did go through like with going to the emergency room and whatnot and you would think what wait wait, david what are you talking about your dad was a pastor but it's like i'm not going to say anything else but it happens and so it was it was a very common thing for us and so i think that also built up um just every year after year and so um that's where now going to college, it was like, yeah, I'm free, like Berkeley. And so my parents, they had their church in Santa Clara. Uh, they still live in Santa Clara. And they actually required us to come home every weekend <laughs> because... They needed my brother to teach the middle school students. I needed to teach the elementary school students. And then I also had to play piano for church. And so we would come up, we would drive from Berkeley and my brother and I are like super tired. And I would, my freshman year, I would try to party as hardcore as possible on Thursday night, trying to find where the Thursday parties are. And then I'm like, I'm like drunk and like just passed out in the car. My brother's driving and my brother, he's like He was, he was a, he was a good kid. Like he didn't drink or anything, but he played games a lot. So because of his playing games, he started like getting, I don't know what the term is called in college or Berkeley, but he started getting notices of, Hey, you should raise your grade. Or you're going to be on probation like that type. But um, so he was kind of tired (laughs) from playing games. And so there was a moment where we would drive home every week and we almost got into a car accident because we're like tired and like, but then we still had to do it for our parents. We had to be the good sons and like, and provide that and so i remember every summer i we we joined this uh group called korea campus crusade for christ uh to 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 get more connected with their roots plus our religion and to be more involved there and every summer they would go on missions trips and i would tell my dad dad god is calling me to the missions field send me to missions trips right now and he's like well, you're not hearing God right. He wants you to stay here and play piano for us. And I'm like, no. <laughs>
2: and
1: I was like, oh, I think God wants me to be a missionary or pastor. He's like, you're not hearing God right still. He never said that. <laughs> and, like, and so there, during all of those moments, I was actually living just like, uh, this is also, college is also the moment where I took kind of my own times of exploring myself and who I was. And so I did a bunch of, first time things, um, in regards to exploring for me, I knew that I was gay my whole life. It's just that I didn't share that with anybody. I did share moments of that growing up where, and I'm going to be very, um, i very just honest, but I remember sharing like we would do Taekwondo and then I think it was like in middle school or high school, my brother and I, and then I would come out of the Taekwondo and as our parents were driving us home, I would whisper to my brother and say, Hey young um that guy was cool right and my brother was like what what do you mean and he's like i i i think he's cool i like him and then my brother's like shh don't say that i was like oh okay all right i won't say anything so like those were the limited extent of conversations that my brother had and my brother and i had about my sexuality and so it wasn't something that i really explored or uh kind of looked further in but there was a moment and I know you had asked for college, but there was a moment in middle school I was watching Gay porn and my parents were upstairs and my brother was watching TV in the other family room and I had and suddenly I heard somebody like behind me. It was like the AOL days, like where the internet like it takes a long time to close out windows. And so she's mm-hmm. I hear like somebody breathing behind me. And I'm like, young, don't tell mom. And I'm like Xing out the windows. And she's like, I'm not Young. And she says it in her Korean accent. And I look, I'm like, holy fuck. And like I'm I'm Xing out all the windows. And she she calls my brother and she makes him open up every single window because he knows how to do that. Just go to the browser history. And and then she told me to go to bed. She didn't talk to me for two, three months. The next wow. day, she took me to the church. She opened the door since she's the pastor's wife. She made me pray at the front altar for like eight hours, um, on my knees. She wouldn't let me get up. Every time I tried to get up, she would hit me. So, so she really wanted to pray the the gay evil demon spirit out of me. And then she told me that she would never tell my dad or my brother. Um, and I mean, even though they had my brother was had seen all of that, that she would never talk about it again with him either. But um, a week later their door was open, our door was open. And I heard her whispering and telling about the incident sharing that with my dad. And I was like, oh my gosh, you just betrayed me. Like out of all people to betray, you just betrayed me and you're my mom. And it was, and I didn't know how to process it back then. And so what what I did was, I think for me to be rebellious was to do drugs, to go drink, to go try other things. And so during college, I tried um hooking up with other guys for the first time. And then I told my brother about it. And this was also during a time where I was involved in a Christian group. And my Mm. brother was like, you should like really pray about it. And I think you're just confused. Um, Holy Spirit will take you and lead you to the truth. And I was like, yeah, you're right. And so then I would actually just physically abstain. If I had a thought, I would just confess to God and probably pray like 10 times every time a, a homosexual thought came up um, or an attraction. And so that kind of, that happened um, throughout college, end of college. Then I ended up moving to New York for law school
2: <clears throat>
1: during the time of college. Um, I guess the theme was I wanted to move farther and farther away from my parents. And which is kind of a sad thing because I wanted my own freedom because I felt that I was being restricted at home a lot. And um, one of the choices that end up, uh, that led, led me to picking law school in New York was because it was on the other side of the country. And in addition to also being like a city that I wanted to live in because I had seen Home Alone 2, I had seen Miracle on 34th Street and all of that. So I wanted that experience. Um, so I ended up moving to New York and, and that's where I really kind of stepped, began to step into the power of, how, of who I was and began to accept and acknowledge, oh, I am gay. Like, it's okay to be gay. And so it's actually in New York that I stopped doing my guilty confession prayers of 15 minutes for every one thought that I had. I stopped doing that. And it was just more a trust. It became more a a longer trust in God that he would fix me over time. And so so when I left New York and graduated and moved to Los Angeles, getting my first job out here, I was still under the mentality of something's wrong with me, but it's okay, it'll take time. So just be patient. But it wasn't until here when I was having my different life experiences, uh, doing all of that, I realized for me now, um, yes, I, I, I was born and raised into a Christian family. But um, I think I came to accept the fact that whatever religion that works for you, use that if that helps you, if you were born into um, Buddhism or whichever I, I don't think it's a religion I think it's more practice Buddhism but if you're born into Hinduism or other religions then do that if that helps you connect with the choice version of who you are and higher deities if that's your thing but for me given that I was born into Christian family I acknowledge all of that and, and I respect all of that but to, to deny myself and say that something's wrong with me and to say that it's a defect and to to allow that is 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 something that I'm not doing justice to myself. And so for me, I realized once I started stepping up and taking care of myself and accepting myself for who I am, that's where I was able to start gaining my power back, be more confident and engaging in conversations. That's where I was able to be uh, more powerful in the deals and contracts that I did and, and to be able to acquire that. So it kind of came to a point where several years ago, Um, I think five, six, seven years ago, I started sharing with my friends, Hey guys, I'm gay. And then, and then after that, it wasn't until I met my boyfriend that I thought, you know what, this is getting really serious. We like each other. I should probably tell my parents. And so I told my parents, um, February of 2018, uh, February, 2018, I told them and they didn't take it very well, um, at all uh long story short i was trapped in my own car by my dad and mom my dad on the right side of me in the passenger seat um and my dad he's been through so much he he um he went through a stroke a few years ago as well so he's partially paralyzed now he's gaining some mobility back but he's still a big strong man and my mom was sitting in the back and i remember i was sharing and coming out to them and my parents just didn't know how to handle it. And coming from their perspective, yes, they immigrated to the States in 1982, 83. Um, They came from a conservative Korea and community in which they were in, but right before, so they're exactly with the same mentality that they immigrated to the States with. So to immigrate to the States, to come to America, and then to find that your son's gay is a huge shocker for them. And it made them sort of feel like that they failed, that they shouldn't have come to America. So then I heard the first thing that my dad said was, I shouldn't have come to America. I shouldn't have come to America. I shouldn't have come to America. And then my mom, she started she started doing some exorcist prayers on me and um, and throwing water on me and and saying these Jesus blood of Jesus cash words and and they were trying to do an exorcism on me for six hours I eventually um, texted my brother had him uh, I texted my brother and he realized that the situation was deep so he texted me and said, Hey, when I get them out of your car, I want you to drive off. Don't even say hi or bye to me or them. I just want you to drive off. And so um, my brother came, he knocked on my window and he said, are you ready? And I said, yes. So he went over to my car passenger side. He knocked on the door. My dad opened it. My dad, my brother picked up my dad, carried him like 30 yards, put him on the, on the parking lot outside the the annoying building. So my grandma lives in downtown, one of those senior resident buildings. So is the parking lot behind there. He picks up my dad, puts him on the parking lot. Because my dad's partially paralyzed, you have to help him to get up. So my brother mm-hmm. deliberately laid him down. <laughs> and then he picks up my mom, and my mom's trying to lock the door, but my he he opens my mom's door. He picks her up. My brother's huge, and like he's a great brother. I love him with all my heart. Um, he picks up my mom. He puts her over on the parking lot, and now he's like, now go fucking drive. And I was like, okay. (laughs) And I just drove, and I didn't see my parents for um, eighteen months, because the next day, they, my mom would leave me ten voicemail messages, text messages. My dad would leave me ten voicemail messages, text messages. um, Kind of just saying, without going into the nitty gritty details. uh, One example was. My dad, a common thing he would say was, God told me you're dying tomorrow and you'll have AIDS dripping from your butt because you'll be Mm -hmm. sleeping with somebody else in bed when you die. So don't go out tonight. And I'm like, what the? Now he's assuming that I go out every night and go sleep with people. So it was just very hurtful just to, I mean, with the Korean son mentality, it was like, no, I need to listen to all of their voicemail. No, I need to listen to read all of their text and I'll just filter out the bad. But you can't do that, I realized, because when you've already heard the hurtful words, how do you filter that out? When you've already read the hurtful text, like how do you filter that out? So then I just had to block that out because the the number of text messages and voicemails weren't diminishing after 10 days, 20 days. So then that's where I thought, you know what, mom, dad, like I'm gonna give you your space. I think you just need space. Um, And so I would check in every three, in the beginning it was, I would check in the first six months, my parents were uh still the same way that they were. So then I checked in three months later again, they were still the same way. And then they eventually knew that, oh, our son might not be talking with us if we don't agree to his two requests. And my two requests to them were, Mom, Dad, I love you with all my heart. Like there's no one else that I love more to that regard. And it would be very meaningful for me if you agree just to two things. Number one, just don't talk about my sexuality. Number two, like You and I, how we see God might be different in some ways. Um, But yeah, let's not talk about uh, religion and sexuality right now. Know that I love Jesus. Know that I love God. And my parents couldn't accept that. So then the three months, I would check in another three months. I would check in another three months. And that's how it became 18 months. Because when I checked in at the 18th month, my mom and dad, surprisingly, they responded back and said, yes, we will agree to your two requests. And when I saw that, I was just so overjoyed, um, because I was overjoyed because for the past for those eighteen months, I was so scared that they would show up at my doorstep suddenly um, and do everything because I because I'm a because I've been through domestic violence. There's still those fears that you have that they would do everything their way, that they would bring a team of ten movers pack all my stuff and send me to conversion therapy camp or whatever. And that as a 33, four-year-old to have as a fear, that's a fucked up fear to have. But for me, given how I grew up and everything that I went through, it was a legitimate fear for me. And so um, there were tears of joy of the fact that that fear was now ending. I didn't have to wake up every morning fearing that my parents would suddenly show up at my doorstep. And um, and it was also just joys the tears of joy of being connected with them again and and being able to have a relationship. And there were times still where my dad couldn't help himself and he had to talk about my sexuality and, and say hurtful stuff. But I know that he's still adjusting to that and and still still doing that. Um so it's now to we've kind of come to a point where and I also reached out um as well and felt it was the appropriate time because it was around the same time that I had announced my run for Congress publicly. And I didn't want, I think for me, the fact that they immigrated to the States for me and my brother to, to work for a bigger life and to go through all of the differences and hardships that they had, for them to then hear from somebody else that their son's running from Congress, how hurtful would that be for them? And I didn't, I didn't want them to feel that their son was rebelling against them
2: because one of the things my mom had said to me was, why are you rebelling against us for being gay? What did we do to you? I was like, Mom, I'm not rebelling against you. You did everything that you could. And then she was like, I don't believe you, you still have grudges against us because you're still gay. But um, I think, I didn't expect to cry, but, but it's, it was just this, if that's what they think, I can't change. You can't change what people think. You can only live and work with that. So for me, I didn't want them to hear from somebody else that I was running for Congress. Because then I would also be taking that away from them intentionally in their eyes. And so I was just, I thought, you know what? I'm going to tell my parents from my mouth myself that I'm running for Congress. And so so then they, I think that's what helped them open up a little more. And
1: um, I know that to this day, they'll be freaking out the fact that I even share this.
2: Because for, for them right now, it's keep this a secret to Koreatown LA. Don't let them know because the moment you let them know every single person korean person in kreotel will not vote for you and so it's it's and so it's with that mentality and that sort of kind of brain i don't want to call it brainwashing
1: but it's it's with that framework and environment that i've grown up with where it's it's very toxic in ways but very liberating so um so that's another thing where it's like hey guys like I know, and this is another thing. I I, I know that some some of the times uh, members of the Koreatown community are like, "Whoa, David! Like, I know that you've been very active in neighborhood council and and other communities in the area, but in terms of Koreatown, I haven't seen you like at a KYCC thing or like at these church things. And for me, it was always this fear of not being accepted because I'm not straight and and I'm not. I mean, I I do fit all of the other checkboxes. I did get that six digit coveted corporate job and got all straight A's and all of that. Like I did all of that, but that one thing. And so I think that one thing kept me from being who I was. But then I think once that all happened, the reconciliation with my parents, that's where I was able to just freely start the campaign from because our campaign is about financial freedom, love and justice for all not leaving one person out because of their color, because of their sexuality, how everybody should have a floor to stand on economically, on how people should have equal access. And so, I think my reconciliation with my parents allowed me to step up into my power more and now really run this Congress congressional campaign from from a place of power and not from a place of victimization.
2: So
0: Thank you for sharing that, man. I I you're 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 a brave 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 person man um i am sorry you had to go through that um i don't know i will never know personally what that feels like um Mm -hmm. but to share with me that you've known your entire life and they got a heads up in junior high like it wasn't news. Yeah, um, they got a preview, um, which just you know it's it's disappointing or I guess sad to think that in all those years they were either in denial or just under some illusion that it would go away. That in fact, perhaps it was a choice. Um, but uh, I, I I don't know. I don't know what needs to change um, within our community because so many, and it's not a generational thing. Unfortunately, I think it's a religious thing. Um, the generational thing doesn't help. Um, you mentioned something that I've, I believe for many years that my parents' version of Korea and Korea politics is January, 1992, and it will never change. And so Korea has gotten a lot more liberal. Korea has gotten a lot more open-minded. Um, and even especially for my parents, like my grandfather served under uh senior president Park. So, uh, I, I don't know too many more details than that, but that just goes to share with you a little bit about like how my grandparents and my family view politics, right? A little bit on the conservative side mm-hmm. and that's the stamp. Mm-hmm. And, and so to them, Korea isn't Korea 2020, Korea is whatever the hell I made out to be in my, for, you know, my remembrance of it 28 years ago. Mm-hmm. And add that to the layer of church and add that even to that layer of being the pastor yeah. Um, and you being the representative representation of him um, publicly. Right. So Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I thank you for sharing that story. Um, I, again, I, I, you have to be you. And and I think I'm, I'm sorry that it took 30 some odd years for you to really live you live life yeah. as you right and 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 you know for for the people that are listening on on i guess on either side or we're we're going through so much as a society right now um the health health pandemic um the sudden awakening for some and yet sort of the vindication that people are finally starting to listen for others that the world's not made to be a fair place for all people especially not America because people don't get to choose skin color and people certainly don't get to choose gender. And if you believe in either, um, I'm sure you've seen that video of that, um,
3: there's
0: a white woman professor uh, standing on a stage asking the room, would any of you white people volunteer to choose to live life as a black person in this country and go through all the things that they go through? And nobody puts their hands up. She goes, and why would you wish that upon somebody else? And I'll ask our audience, for all, for for the things that David has personally gone through and endured with his own family, who would choose that? Who would choose to be disconnected from his parents for so long and to be shunned and to be beaten for it? why would anybody choose that? It's not a choice. And perhaps a conversation for a different time. um, But just even my own frustration of people in America in general, particularly in our own community, that um, hide behind the Bible or the cross to justify some of these feelings. And like when you're, dad said no god's saying stay here and like play piano like if that's his defense like what the hell right like how do you as a lawyer too dude like that that's that is like an infallible argument right like yeah but when people use that as their defense and we're trying to use humanity as our leading argument it's it's hard to reconcile those two differences because Humanity is my religion as it is yours, equal treatment for all people. Like, how do you, you know, it's it's something that I am ashamed to believe that I grew up in the church as well. And I think about the things that I used to think about people that were not like me and happy that I evolved away from it, but also ashamed that I even thought that at the same time, recognizing that I was a product of my environment and there was probably not much I could have done to educate myself and be woke, right? 20 years ago, um as a mm-hmm. child. But I think your story will, if it hasn't already, I know it has, um will continue to inspire so many other not even kids, man, our peers and even some older folks yeah. to just be you. Yeah. Um yeah, if yeah. a gay Korean dude wins the congress seat yeah, some pastors will probably flip the fuck out, right? Like, but so what? Like, are you going to, you know what I mean? Like, you you did, I mean, up until you quit the law firm or, you know, at, at the studio to do this, mm-hmm. like you went to Cal, then you went to law school, then you worked at the, fir- and you worked at the county district attorney, like check, 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 right? You did everything you were supposed to do. Yeah. And then like, realization that you have to admit that this person was born this way and this is a fundamental part of who he is then somehow that negates everything like come on right like it's it's logic to me it's logic to you and it's the very basic form of logic which is just humanity but in in some ways um and not to discount the, the trauma and the pain that you probably still go through um I am so glad that you are running this campaign with that behind you, because oh, for, sure. yeah. for, for people to realize, and particularly for Asian Americans who have grown up in the conservative church bucket or in the, in the bubble, this is big, right? For, for, for a pastor's kid to come out and then to run for Congress proudly as a gay Korean dude. Like that in and of itself is pretty awesome. Once you win, it'll be a bigger deal, right? Because you represent the future of not just America, but for kids that look like me and you to just be who they are authentically. And that if the son of a prominent Korean pastor who literally stood up multiple churches here in the States and made his living building churches can do that, then that story deserves to be told forever and ever. And in in addition to you being a damn good human being and standing for the values that you do, I am just so looking forward to you being able to share that story from a position of authority, from a position of trust and credibility because you've earned the positions that you've earned. Um, and, and, and so for that, David, I am just filled with so much emotion Um Doing what I do, sitting in this chair, talking to as many people as I do, you you, you hear it all. Um, still wasn't ready for that.
1: Yeah, no, I, I just wanted to add, I, I think there could be some people wondering, so is he a Christian or not? Um, I, what I What I said was, I, I don't think it's, I think there's a higher purpose to everything in the sense of the family that you were born into, the friends and relationships you have, the opportunities that open up for you. And it's all divine. And so for me to throw away what I was brought up with is there's also something there. And so I've, I've embraced Christianity. I am a Christian. I believe in God. And, but, uh, but I also think though, that, that if you were born into a different religion, then, then do that, if that helps get you there. And I know that a lot of pastors and friends of my dad and mom, if they were to hear this would be like, oh my gosh, that's heresy. Uh, But, but for me, it's, it's just like, it's like you're going to a destination and you have methods to get there and maybe mm-hmm. one of the fastest ways to get there is by car so you have like a Hyundai Sonata or a Ford whatever or um a Tesla whatever the car is and they represent like hinduism christianity whatever they take you a certain extent but you have i think each of them re- emphasize this personal relationship with whoever it is they take you to a certain point but there's a certain point where the cars can't go past and you have to journey yourself And so whatever Mm -hmm. car you use, whatever religion, that's fine. Um, And embrace what you were born into and your heritage, because there's probably a purpose to that. So, yeah, I am Christian uh, for those who are wondering. But then they're like, how can you be gay? Well, let's have a different time and discussion for that. But
0: But even just the fact that you had to explain that, David, I think speaks to, uh, for, for people who are not raised in the environment, just the amount of pressure that we grew up under to have to always explain things it's true right like i didn't ask you if you were still christian and i don't know if anybody thought <laughs> it but you felt the need to well, justify no, it
2: I, I felt
1: the need to justify for the the <laughs> korean christian listeners
0: <laughs> it's okay they already turned it off already they already next let skip to the next episode um the moment they heard gay porn they said fast forward we're not finishing this episode um so you are you have been because um, obviously your, your parents are sort of the, the final hurdle um, in sort of the the general populace of letting people know. Um, for two plus years, um, everybody's known. Uh, for the past nine months or so, um, you, you've been building back up your relationship with your parents. Um, and so now you're making this run for Congress, um, which is... Wow. Um, It's a big deal. Um, Even just to have run, I guess, placed in the top two of the primary and to be on the ballot in November is a big deal. Um, Not only is it a big deal, David, I think the way you're doing it is even a bigger deal. Um, The platforms on which you stand, uh, the people that you count as your influences. Share with me your relationship or your involvement in the world of politics, um, having gone to law school and having worked at the county level, um, we can get a little bit of understanding of your um, adjacency or at least familiarity with the world of law and politics. Um, you shared with us a little bit earlier that you were frustrated and you did not see any solutions coming out of a, you know what the, what the current state was. So you, you wanted to be the one to go in and, and shake things up. Um, that nobody was running on a platform of universal basic income or other basic humane, humane and human needs. Um, take us through that thought process until the moment you shouted to the world, yo, I'm running for Congress.
1: Yeah, I believe that thought process. and And this is the thought process that that we shared during interviews, but I remember the first time when I started doing these interviews related to congressional campaign and promo purposes and, and just to get the word out, I initially had said, you know what, I was politically activated when I was campaigning for Kenneth Hia, when he ran for this spot that I'm running for currently two years ago, and that's how I was politically activated, and it's true to the extent of political activism in the sense that we know of as actively making change and taking action and doing it in different ways, whether it be a policy issue campaign or a congressional campaign or a state assembly campaign. And so in terms of that, that was my first exposure. But I, I didn't realize that my first exposure to and, and following justice as my leader And in a way, and and I like to think of justice as a person, just to personify it more. But the Mm -hmm. sense and feeling of justice, I I wasn't aware that that was leading me throughout my choices in law school. It was leading me throughout my career choices in my legal career as well. Where eventually I wanted to, I realized, wow, a lot of my artist, writer, director, singer songwriter friends are taking advant are being taken advantage of attorneys in the entertainment industry who you would think would not take advantage of their clients because they're their attorneys but the way they take advantage is through money so when you have a struggling artist paying a ten thousand retainer to an attorney Mm -hmm. and the struggling artist is just getting meager residual checks how does that match up and where is the compassion in that relationship and why would that attorney even do that if the attorney is aware that their client is in that position. Um, no matter how much money you want to charge, or no matter how much you want to get business, and so for me, it was very heartbreaking cool. to see different artists and writer and director yeah. and other friends get charged an arm and a leg for a contract that they could probably be charged less. And so it was it was funny because one extent, while I was working, um, and there was it's it's hard to get your foot in the door with the entertainment industry. So there were times where I, w- I was working as an attorney for free, because that's how you do it, and the legal market was shitty. And so I would I would work as a full-time attorney for free. Then I would go drive for Lyft and Uber at night from 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. doing the hustle, and I would sleep for three hours, go back to work to my free lawyer job. Um, but during that time, I was also helping my friends do their artist contracts, look over it, and I asked them, why are you asking me all these questions when you have a $10,000 retainer with your attorney and I'm helping you for free and I'm like on three hours of sleep? And they say, mm-hmm. well, they don't really take the time to explain it as carefully as you do. And like whenever I have follow-up questions, they're always annoyed or they're not available. And, and then when I do call, then a uh, one-minute call is like charged 30 minutes. And, and so it was just, oh, my gosh, you guys are being manipulated and taken advantage of. And that's where I thought, oh, there's a market for this. There's a niche for this. We can we can revolutionize that. And so I created the hollywoodlawyer.com wow. October 2014. Wow. Um, I couldn't have done it. I'm going to give a shout out to Jason Ma. Jason Ma was wow. one of my main clients who helped me.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and it continues to this day to seek me as his main legal counsel, where if it weren't for his monthly also... Legal services. I don't know if I would have been able to start that out, but I started October 2014 to provide uh, creative legal to, to provide niche legal services to creatives to make flat fee options, hybrid options, um, and to make it more affordable and 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 something that they can know ahead of time up front. And so that went off well. I did. I ended up doing. I ended up becoming known as the K-pop attorney at some point because different K-pop acts would contact me and say, oh, I found your contact through so-and-so or through Cube Entertainment or whatever. And I hear that you're the attorney to contact in LA when it comes for K-pop acts needing an American, English language contract to be looked over. And and so I I wrote like, different articles in Korean and, and participate in that. And so I made my contributions in the whole Asian American aspect. And that, that was my contributions as an Asian American, really helping with that. Uh, one of my client, a lot of, I like some clients where Kev Jumba was my client. He's still a good friend. Um, uh, Fiona who plays Kitty Pong and Crazy Rich Asians, um, just different, different people and K-pop artists from Amber, Ailey and other Uh, people out there and be on the lookout for Ailey. She's coming out with great music in the U S market soon. I did that shameless plug, (laughs) but, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I spent my time doing that. And while doing that, I realized this is what drives me to do my work every day to wake up and realizing that I am making a change in all of these clients lives because every time I don't even ask them to do, reviews or whatnot, but they go ahead and do their own reviews. They go ahead and go out the extra leg and say, Hey, David, is there anything you want me to do for you? You explained that so well to me and and we're very happy with our deal. And I, I guess I felt like I reached kind of this end point where, all right, my duty's done here. I still have these other items I want to do. And one of those items was to really be organizing in the community, to be involved, um, to be active in that. And so I chose Kenneth Mejia's campaign in 2018. To be involved with that, and that's where I remember receiving a text message from Kenneth Mejia, who's who's Filipino, and he's a few years younger. And I remember receiving a text from his campaign, and it was talking about all the right policy issues and values, and had all the right language. And I I was like, what? This kid is younger than me. What? This is awesome. He's like he's stepping into his power. And my whole thing was you have to be transparent. You can't have two masks. all that, I mean, to a certain extent, we do act differently in front of different people because they bring different elements of us. Um, so that's a different thing. But for me, it was all about transparency. And it was around the same time where Or it is the same time where I had my 18 month break with my parents and I was like, yeah, I'm true to myself, although it hurts right now that I can't talk with them and I have this fear that they'll show up on my doorstep. There was this other side of freedom where I was like, yeah, I'm my free man. And I was going around saying, no, you earn money like it doesn't make sense that you're, you're paying all this tax and you're still worried about how to pay rent. And that's where I, I was really Mm -hmm. able to find my voice and my power on Kenneth Beha's campaign. And what I loved Mm -hmm. about him is he empowered me by letting me be his number three, fourth person on the campaign team, even though he had already Mm -hmm. had a campaign team and he let me take over certain aspects of his campaign. And it was just kind of these different teachers along the way with, with Kenneth and with Um, various friends and relationships that I had that I realized, oh my gosh, it shouldn't end here. And so from Kenneth's campaign, although he lost, um, he only ended up winning a total 28 percent of the vote. But for him, that's a that's a huge thing, because as a Green Party candidate, there's less than one percent registered as green. Um, But he managed to get a third of Democrats to not vote for their Democrat candidate, but to vote for the Green Party one. And so when I saw that, I thought, you know what Kenneth you need to run again and he's like no I'm not running again it's like no this guy's only been in office like a year you need to run again it's like no I'm too burnt out so I thought okay well we'll leave it at that and then I was looking for more local organizing efforts to be involved in and because I was um, living right now I still live in MacArthur Park neighborhood MacArthur Park neighborhood council district area I started Um, I went ahead and ran for office for MacArthur Park Neighborhood Council. I won a position on the neighborhood council. For those who are hearing for this for the first time, neighborhood councils in Los Angeles, we have 99 neighborhood councils. Each neighborhood council serves 40,000 residents of L.A., and they're according to certain boroughs and neighborhoods. So Koreatown has about two or three, two different neighborhood councils encompassing that area and and various other areas uh you have different neighborhood councils representing them but when i started serving on the neighborhood council i realized my my eyes were opened up to even more worlds and more encounters and more relationships and people that i got to know not just from kenneth's campaign but now even in our own community and what i realized oh my gosh like this financial distress is is so deep where this thing of financial anxiety, like for myself, worrying about this $200,000 student loan all the time was eating me away. I can't even imagine how you're feeling because you don't have money to pay this month's rent and to pay for your car bills or your medical bills right now. And to realize that this daily deep-rooted fear and anxiety of money wasn't just personal to me. It was common to every single person in our neighborhood, and our community. And it was that bigger realization that hit me where when you see concrete examples of, These 50-year-old, 60-year-old moms and grandmas on our neighborhood council finishing their two to three jobs, running to the meeting, afraid that they're late because they're going to be marked tardy or absent for a thankless volunteer job. But then they're doing it because that's the last thing that they can cling on to, to prevent their neighborhoods from being gentrified and to prevent themselves from being displaced and their families being displaced. And seeing that, it was like, wow, there's nobody standing up for you guys right now like we have elected officials that continue to be reelected but they're not really standing up for you based on what the what the voting what how they vote and what issues and bills that they're putting up forth so for example the current incumbent in our district during a time of covid-19 where masses of people now don't have jobs instead of just opting for a rent and mortgage suspension or cancellation something that could really help the people. He's more supportive of a rent relief fund where you put the onus on tenants to apply for it and to jump through all these hoops and hurdles. And where that's something that a landlord is better situated to do. I mean, and and I'm for a good, there's a lot of good landlords, but just overall, like in a time where in a pandemic crisis, where you've obviously seen the one-time stimulus check take weeks and even will take up until September to get to some people, you've seen that. How in the world are you fighting for these these less direct relief measures, or or how are you thinking that a recurring monthly direct cash relief to the people right now is a little extreme when you just bailed out billions to companies that are actually some of your corporate donors? Uh, for example, Delta, JetBlue, they were bailed out in billions, but yet they laid off and or they they say that they will lay off their employees guess what? They're corporate donors of my opponent. And so it's just these connections and dots that our people have to make of why do we feel that the same old and same old continues happening? It's because, and I think it's, it's not to say that we're arbitrarily enforcing purity tests, but money is a powerful energy. And, and, and if your money and your campaign is being sourced by corporate interests and you have only 400 individual donors and I have 800 individual donors and I've actually knocked on more doors, but just because you have more corporate funding, you win the election. Something is fucked up in our system. And that's, that's what I realized and hit me to the core and had me resign from my job, had me go all in with this campaign. And, um, and so, yeah, so that's where I'm at right now. Currently I'm, although I am working on this campaign pretty much full time because end up working till very late I still need to pay the bills so instead of working 12 hours a day at my studio job that I had and for a corporation um, I was actually looking for a job a a day job to switch to that that would be very more meaningful to me and justice driven and I was watching the reboot of Party of Five on TV uh, several months ago and I was watching episodes one and two and the parents are getting separated from their children. And I started crying while I was watching and I didn't understand why I was crying. But to me, I think it might've reminded me of my, me and my own parents. And that's a whole different situation. But just being able to connect to that, it allowed like a gush of waterfall of tears like what just happened a while ago. And I was like, oh, that's the, that's the practice area I need to switch to. So right now I'm a part-time immigration attorney. Uh, I defend people from being removed. Um, so when they receive a notice to appear to be deported, I go to court for their um, appearances and, and, um, and plead for an extended stay. Um, prior, when President Obama was president, we had what was called prosecutorial discretion, where as long as you had a good, clean criminal history, you were paying your taxes, even though you didn't have papers, we would just sort of close your case and just move on. But Trump is not allowing that at all. And so we have to at all costs uh, defend removals. And and for those who might be wondering, why is that so important? Yes, I get the whole fact that America is the land of the free. And that's an uh, opportunity that we're shutting out from some people. But I think it's not I think, but it's even more than that. to those who are listening, um, when I'm pleading in court for the judge to extend their stay, I'm talking about Their personal accounts of my client who's 16 years old, afraid to return to Honduras because literally there's gang members waiting for his return to kill him as soon as he lands foot. And that's the stuff and gravity that our people really need to realize. Like, if we really are saying that we're the land of the free, and we clearly know that if we send this person back to their country, they're going to be killed, isn't that within your power to have them just stay here then? Doesn't that make sense? And so I think. It's, it's the spiritual revival of D.C. that's needed as well. I think a lot of them who are legislating right now, they're they're like balloons with cut off from their strings or grounding. And they're just flying aimlessly in the air without being connected to their communities, without being connected to the palette of human emotions, of humanity, the struggles, the suffering, the grind, all of that, um, the emotions involved. And I think that's 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 caused by money. That's caused by no term limits. That's caused by a lot of things. And now is the time for reform and, and for us to do that with, with all of our communities. And some, some people say, wow, David, but you're Korean, you're Asian, you shouldn't be doing that. That's not the typical thing for you to do, but it's like, no, I like that has, I mean, I think that has more to do with it perhaps. And, and so when I write birthday cards to my dad, or the Happy Father's Day, Father's Day was recent. And I say to my dad every time, I'm like, Dad, thank you for immigrating to the States. And he loves hearing that. He loves hearing that. Um, Because for my dad, Korean dad, it's it's hard for them to express and, and to communicate their love. So the way I communicate my love is to my dad is to show him and to get him more involved in the daily happenings or things that I'm doing. Because for him, it's like, like, oh, yes, I immigrated to the States. My son loves me and he's making it worth it for me. And to him, that's love. So I'm just communicating in his love language with him. And I think it's very important for us to find out what each other's love languages are, not just like on this lovey-dovey type of thing, but on a collective scale, Mm. on humanity scale, like, what does that look like? When we say that we love the people, what does that tangibly look like? Are we do do we still have people out on the streets? Oh, we do. Okay, we need to step up in that and, and show our love in that area. Uh, how about this area, other area, and then so forth. So, so yeah, those are those are things that have propelled us to be here.
0: I, I love you, man, and I'm not the only one. I'm gonna rattle off some folks and some organizations that our listeners will definitely consider household names very familiar names who have publicly uh, voiced their support for your campaign and and you as a as a as a fine human being um Marianne Williamson Andrew Yang and his organization Humanity First um Our Revolution LA and most recently the Sunrise Movement what do those names mean for you um when they publicly support you and your vision of how you want not just Los Angeles, but America to look like.
1: Yeah, for us, our, our campaign, we recently, because we were operating on a five person team in the primary election, and now we're operating on a bigger team. We rebranded our campaign and, and really aligned it and, and grounded it to make it community focused. So our slogan uh, now is community first and so you see that on our slogan and our logo or our, on our logo and what I feel and I gave a preview of this a little before what's currently happening right now in DC is elected officials are legislating like balloons cut off aimlessly in the, in the air without being grounded to their communities so instead of having the situation currently where legislature, legislative representatives are first taking action, making and passing these bills in D.C., and then coming back and reporting after the fact on the crumbs that they've uh, managed to garner for the people, it should actually be the other way around, where representatives are actually having full-blown discussions and town halls and AMAs and office hours with their constituents to see what they really need, and then go back to D.C. and report back, Mm -hmm. and that should be the process. And and if, if we have to baby them by saying and putting in a requirement of every elected official must have available office hours that are easy to seek or whatever mechanism that we place to start re-engaging the people. That's how we can start shifting back to a more centered, humanity-centered, aligned government. Because if our legislators are legislating first and then come back to report the crumbs that they've given us, that's wrong government. That's not a representative government at all. And so for us, our campaign, we also, on our website, put um, weekly office hours for constituents. Um, so if you're a constituent living in CD34, you can sign up for Zoom office hours. If the slots run out, run out, we'll add more slots. And our idea is to continue this even after we get elected and go into Congress to have weekly office hour components for constituents do. But what's important for these local endorsements, especially our Revolution LA, Sunrise Movement LA, and we are seeking a few more that will be um, pending and announced, but the reason why it's important is every representative and elected official should be co-governing with the people because mm-hmm. the representative's duty and job is to manifest and represent the will of the people. And if you're not doing that with engagement, if you're not doing that with discussion, if you're not doing that with attending their protest, listening to their cause, getting putting your finger on the pulse of what's happening right now, then you failed as a representative. Step down and let somebody else run. And so for for me, I've I've been really involved in my local neighborhood council. I've been involved ever since COVID nineteen happened. Um, a thing for me was, oh my gosh, people won't be able to pay rent, so I can't even tell you how many times I protested in front of Mayor Garcetti's house uh, with different groups of people. I think I've been there 15 times. I don't know. I've been there a lot. Um, Just protesting, sign picketing, sign doing car honks, protests, um, and different um, whether it be cancel rent, commandeering hotels for unhoused brothers and sisters, doing all of that, and being very putting my ear to the ground because I think it's most important to talk with those people that are actually doing the groundwork every day on the ground. So those groups here in Los Angeles, for those that are listening, are Ground Game LA, um, k Tom for All, Sunrise Movement, Our Revolution, LA Can, uh, No Olympics LA, um, and and various other groups, Black Lives Matter. There's a lot of groups that I couldn't mention, People City Council. So there are these other groups where they really know what's going up because their one and main focus, Jerry, is when they don't have their day, their bread and butter job, their whole focus is on the policy issues that that group is focused on, and that's their life. They're experts at that. So how are you going to legislate in D.C. according to what the D.C. experts in D.C. tell you when they've never actually lived here and they don't know what the struggles yeah. here are in our daily community? So what's going on in right now in the government is we have this spectrum of real issues going on for the people right now, but then our officials are over here thinking that, this spectrum of issues that they're dealing with accurately represent their communities, but it's not. And so we really need to tether it down by by holding our officials more accountable, by increasing community engagement, and really um, pushing that movement for co-governance with the people again. So that's what that's that's how that's why these endorsements are very important to us to show people that hey look like we we're working nationally too. If you if if that name power helps you, but then we are also grounded with our local bases here too. So a variety of those endorsements are important.
0: The things that you share about what you believe to be what government should be um, are unfortunately some things that some people are like. Wow, I don't know anybody who does that. Like having office hours with your constituents, like even using virtual means because showing up somewhere physically when you say my town hall is X, Y, Z in a district as large as 34 is, is excluding some people who don't have transportation, who don't have time, who don't have ability. Um, Marching alongside protesters at the mayor's house saying you're, you're, you have and you continue to mess up and you need to be better. Um, like the mind boggle of how those basic human things as fellow citizens and fellow community members seem such crazy novel ideas because we've been conditioned to think that the average politician is a rich, privileged, well-educated, well-connected old white guy Who just comes and nods his head. Mm -hmm. Um, Like that's sort of been purposely and because of our own complicit silence and um, just letting it happen. Like that's the definition of what an American politician is for very many people. And what you are proposing as the alternative is not radical at all. In fact, just as Marianne's message, just as Andrew's message, and just that is yours. This is like just human shit, man. Um, And you are as authentic as they come because if things go as they should, you are going to be uh, one of the first still. um, There are some, obviously, um, like Andy in New Jersey and and others, like Korean-American congressman, a gay Korean-American congressman, somebody who's been extremely authentic and open about some of the things that you've done in your past with no shame because history is fact and fact shouldn't be covered. Um, somebody who's not afraid to talk at the level of his constituents and share his raw emotions and just speak it like it is. Why is that? The fact that that is a novel, crazy, socialist, communist, crazy idea that you're going to get painted as, like, how did we, in a district, mind you, that is, you know the numbers better than I do, like, minority majority, right? Like, everybody's an immigrant in 34, right? Like, you mentioned, you know, uh, little Bangladesh, Town, Chinatown, little Tokyo, historic Filipino town. Dude, like every you know and obviously in in macarthur park area in like it is literally a representation of the world and the thing that binds the world together is our basic humanity as human beings and you are proposing things that just really the common denominator are the things that make us human um and and for people who are like who, who've listened to the show like you, none of this should surprise you like this is the way I feel about, you know, politics and the people that we've had on the show. Like, this is not rocket science. And and so step two, I mean, step one, um, I guess, is for you to run. Step two is for people to learn about you. And then step three is getting people to know more about you um, while 2xing the individual donor count of your opponent is wildly impressive and we're still 130 days. Um, I only know because Grace called me yesterday and she says, do you know it's 131 days until election day? And I said, well, now <laughs> I do. Shit. Um, and uh, how, how and, many and, and was we, it? How many was 130, it? 130, I think. Okay, got it. Um, I think. Grace, if my math is wrong, I'm sorry. Uh, Grace, you for LA City Council, CD10. Um, but, you know, it's like, it's impressive that you've gotten the 100 individual donors, but that is a fraction and almost a rounding error of the people who you stand to represent in the district. And in the grander scheme of you don't have to live in 34th to donate to your cause and to become a supporter of yours. Because as we've seen as recent as this Tuesday, when certain um, Elliot Engel voted out of New York. Um, other other people yeah and and we'll see if you know uh the kentucky count isn't final yet right until next tuesday so like we're still in this wave of yes a blue wave but a particular um brand of blue wave that is i I don't know you can't like dissect colors even more and divide but still right like the more human beings the more progressive and the more the good guys are, are coming and um sort of taking the voice away by voting with our dollars and our support and our and our votes um some of these uh democrat folks who don't actually and and this is factual because their voting records and and their donor records say it like they don't work for us and they've benefited from um purely not being republican maybe or just you know right time right place or their opponents didn't do that well whatever the case may be right so um and, and this is uh, not a, you know, a, uh, I don't know, a telethon for, for David Kim here on the show. But um, if if people have listened this far, have gotten to know you, have heard your stories of the greatest triumphs and some of your most dark memories and believe that you will be, you should be, you will, that you deserve to be. The congressman to represent Council or uh, District Thirty Four of California come January, and we'll decide that here in November. What is a meaningful way for people to step up and support you, whether they are residents of Thirty Four or they live in Michigan? How how can people support you? What would be meaningful to you?
1: That, those are great questions. And I I usually would just give the whole generic go donate on our campaign website, DavidKint2020.com. Go volunteer, davidkent2020. 2020com forward slash volunteer. Uh but and those those are two options that you can most likely do. Uh for for if you're li- living in Michigan and, and you do want to help out, we do have opportunities for you to volunteer or donate, um, whether it be text banking or phone banking or other things. Um, and if you have other skill sets, whether it be creative, graphic design, we, we, we are in need of them all. So, so let us know on that. But I think in, in regards to this Asian American community specifically, and I'm not generalizing, but my observation and experience up until now has been, I'm just laying it down there. I've played a pivotal role in Asian American entertainment and the legal landscape. And so it would be, I guess it would be, it would be cool to see that community come out and actually come out and say, Hey, like we should actually unite on this front and endorse David in, I don't know, a collage of endorsement videos or or tweets or whatever it is. But I feel like I'm lacking that even though I'm from that community and helped out or, or I get a lot of, Kiangs and Nunas or other uh, Chinese Taiwanese Kiangs and Nunas like repeat back to me very jaded and not interested. Oh, I don't think you have a real chance because if you look at the numbers and it's like just say you can't donate because you can't donate. Like I would rather hear that than trying to prove to me that you're not donating because you don't believe in the campaign and and mm-hmm. trying to do that. And so I've I've I found more opposition in terms of whether it be calling different people for donor support or for endorsement support or just complete lack of interest. And I think that has to do with this general notion or general awareness that we have in terms of Asian Americans could be better at getting out the vote and being more civically engaged in that aspect. So I I get that. Um, So it's just a matter of how do we work with that and and so, if you're listening to this uh, podcast and you are a member of an Asian American community-related organization or group, or you know somebody that does, please feel free to share our information, our campaign, with that member. Um, and and the reason why I say this is I've we've I've done my fair share of a couple of interviews here and there, especially with Asian-affiliated ethnic community organizations. And after doing the interview, they're like, that's great, that's et cetera, but we've decided not to make an endorsement in the race. And without naming the, the, even the specific names, like Korean American So-and-so Club or Korean American So-and-so Organization, they flat out say, no, uh, we can't endorse you. And it's like, why? Why did you, you make that decision? And it's like, oh, um, we, we like we like Jimmy. And they can't really tell me the real reason. And the real reason is because if they endorse me, they're afraid that they're going to ruin their relationships with the current incumbent and also disadvantage what the current incumbent could be doing with the Chinatown community or the Korean community or whichever community it is. So in a greater level, it's sad to see because I understand where they're coming from. Because they're thinking more larger picture of, oh, if we decide to endorse David, but David loses, it's going to backfire on our entire community. So let's not endorse David. But let's also just tell him a lie and say we're just not choosing to endorse endorse anybody for the reason stated. Like, it would be better if they could just straight out tell me and say that. So we have clubs like the Korean, I'm just going to say it, the Korean American Democratic Club. You didn't endorse me. How in the world? How in the world? And I'm not going to no. hold it against you. After I get elected and win, come to me with support all you want and the help all you need, and I will help because I'm here for everybody. But you let me down. And I'm, I am and I don't know. It was just this whole Korean thing. Like, I don't understand. Um, so I'm calling you out, Korean American Democratic Club. Um, but just so if you have if or if you're in an organization or no organization that can endorse, it would help a lot. The second thing is we are developing different policy pages. Um, If you look at our website right now, we have some existing pages for different policy issues. We will be developing an Asian policy platform issue page separately and a Spanish-speaking community uh, policy platform page separately. So if you want to contribute into your feedback of, David, I heard you're developing an Asian policy-specific platform page. These are my ideas or this is what I would love to see or these are some concerns I have. Please reach out, let us know. Uh, my email is david at davidkim2020.com because, as a representative, as anybody running for office, they should always be co governing with the people. So, if that's you, please let us know what um, things you would like to see in that Asian policy platform pitch.
0: I love you and how, like, just bold you are, um, call, calling people out for their shit. Um, and, and look, that's the perpetual thing, right? they don't want to support you because you don't have a chance but your chance would be better if they supported you and other communities get 100% behind their guy without because without worrying about the the consequences because in some ways you're never going to forget their support right like i, I you know it's it's mind-boggling um and look if if you're outside of the LA area and you belong to a Asian American, Korean American, whatever. It doesn't even have to be Asian. Any sort of group that believes in yes. the things that David believes in. Um, give give him a shout. He doesn't even need to leave home. Like he'll zoom in and talk to you guys and um look, because I, I, I think as with the case of Marianne and as with the case of Andrew, the message is sound. It's the amplification of the message and the number of people who then hear it. That's the problem, right? Like after I often think about had the pandemic hit during the primaries when Andrew was still in the race and UBI became a thing, how things could have turned out differently for him. Because we're talking about it now because it's an actual sound idea. It's just that the timing was off and that not enough people got to hear about it. Right. And I think even for you, it is. A numbers game. Um, I mean, look, one concrete thing that you can do is if, if you've made it to, I don't know, or whatever minute this show is into, you, you've, thank you for investing all this time into David and my uh, talking. But like, Share this out. How many, co- how, how many candidates for United States Congress gets this emotional and this honest with you? <laughs> that in and of itself should be, in my opinion... A strong cause why you should support somebody because the stuff that you share dude, like it's not easy, and even though it's just me and you, the people listening right now are, or who who knows you know people listen to this from all over the world, so it's it's crazy, and so um i I, I thank you um, for being bold and brave to give up uh the dream. <laughs> of the six figure legal career at X studio and, pay off my and then to, I mean, you can always go back. Right. But yeah. for, for now you, That's you, true. you've, you've taken the path of, um, servanthood, uh, to serve the hundreds of thousands of people that are your district. Um, I used to live there. I don't anymore, sadly. Um, of, of district 34, um, And to play a critical role in changing the narrative of the future of America, Um, I, as as, as cool as it is, I said at some point during a conversation that when the person running is somebody that looks like me, I get excited. Um, But then we have plenty of people that look like me and you um, in different parts of Southern California, namely North Orange County, who look like me and you but don't believe in anything like you and I do. And so we don't play identity politics. I don't play. It's nice to think that people share similar shared struggles with believe in some of the shared solutions, um, but we don't. And and for you, I, I will share very honestly that as I've gotten to know you and have followed you and have engaged with your staff, um, particularly Hannah Wan, um, my my fake cousin from, from another uh, family tree, um, it's the real deal. And. I I know this is something that many people say, and you're not supposed to, to somebody who's running for as high as an office as you. Um, Whether or not you win in November or not certainly does not dictate the impact that you have had, that you continue to have, and that you will have in the community of all of 34, particularly for people that look like a little bit me and you for every single gay Korean kid who's deathly afraid to share their story with their parents and for even parents of gay children who just don't even know how to process information because they've been told one thing for so long. Um, you're going to go on to do great things, man. So, um, first things first, we, we, we got, you know, just, just over four months to, um, help, help you, um, help you win. Um, if you're listening, uh, David brushed over it earlier, but go go check out davidkim 2020com dot um, Go on Instagram to at David Kim for Congress, um, and and do what you can. Um, people are feeling a little bit helpless because we're stuck at home. Um, traditional campaigning, literal campaigning, door to door on foot, is gone out the window. Um, but the upside, as David alluded to earlier, is you can text from home. You can call from home. Um, you can call businesses and to see if they'd be willing to put a sign on the window or do something. Um, If any of my other podcast friends are listening, have David on your show. Look, we're all fighting for the same things. We want to be treated for the people that, for for who we are, um, far beyond um, what we look like. Um, But for us to have a chance at that, we need people who look like us and to feel our pain and to feel our struggle, to be in the positions and in the rooms to make decisions that represent us. And so if you're frustrated as I am, that our government is not of us, um, one small step that I think we can all make is to support David and very many other candidates like him across the country, um, who, who believe that, um, America, the way it was supposed to be is something that is still feasible and that we will, um, do everything we can. Um, so yeah, David, thank you again so much. Um, I, I wasn't ready to hear some of the stories uh, that you shared, um, and I'm glad you did. Um, it is it is uh, 2020's been a weird year. I hope we ended up on a high note. Um,
1: yeah, I know. I wanted to just say you you were you had mentioned this point of I know there's people at home hopeless, not knowing what to do, um, and that's that's the key thing to do to not to do is to not lose hope because our hope is the source of our power. And if that hope isn't there, where does our power come from? We can't just create it if there's no hope. So don't lose your hope because then you're losing your power. So uh, be encouraged. I hope this inspires your connection with you in some way. If it doesn't go listen to a different episode.
0: Um- <laughs> <laughs> if, they li- if they lifted this far, they're, they're in. Um- okay. <laughs> hey, 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 David, I want to thank you for your time again. and um, Want to ask for your help in helping us finish out the episode, um, in in classic the Asian American style. Um, as as many of our listeners know by now, uh, this show is a letter to the Asian American community from the Asian American community, and more importantly than those two things, it is for the Asian American community. I set out to start this show as a gift to my daughter, and even for myself, to be to give permission. For people who look like me and you to share the stories that are so common to us, yet we don't, we have not, uh, we continue not to be as encouraged as we should and can um, to really share how we feel, to share our own common experiences. We get some pretty meaningful and awesome letters back from the community. Um, and I think it's because it is in the, spirit of the show that we share our most intimate thoughts and our in our deepest convictions and so david if you can help me finish out the show um i'll start and if you could finish out the letter dear asian americans
1: we are very beautiful we're gifted we're talented we're unique we're similar, we're different in so many ways. And it's encouraging to to note and see that we acknowledge the similar struggles that we've been through, the similar moments of happiness and, and joy and, and experiences of also um, sadness and difficulties that we've all gone through and we're able to relate to that. But take heart that those moments and all of those experiences allowed us to have conversation, to come together, to to talk more, to discuss more, to connect on things that make us cry, to make us laugh, to make us passionate, to make us angry, because that's what makes us human. And it's okay to have different emotions and feelings, whether that be at a time in your life where you're embarrassed of your heritage or you wish you're... Community could be doing more, and it's and it's okay to have those feelings at at some point in our life because we're human, and there's no need to beat ourselves over the head, or to judge ourselves, or to give ourselves a hard time, given that we have that Asian upbringing to do so.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Just let that go. Uh, but I think right now it's more a time for us to just let go, give ourselves permission to be ourselves, uh, to admire the flaws or or weaknesses in each other in ourselves and to embrace that fully because it's not only until we embrace completely fully ourselves, our communities, our family, our parents, our own identity, that we start to embrace our own self as a person. And that's definitely what um, my own experiences have showed me. And so what I would like to close off with is don't forget to be your full, beautiful self to be you because that's where you're able to have all of yourself in one place in the present moment and to be your powerful self. And no one can take away your power unless you let them, even your fears.
0: Thank you. I'm just so grateful that you decided to come on the show to share with us um, your life, your story, your vision, your passion. for a guy that has perhaps one of the most common Korean names in America, because <laughs> um, I think our parents just flipped through the Bible and said that one, King um,
2: David. David Kim. Yeah,
0: um, I was named after the mouse, so I can't really give a biblical oh. connection to my name because I couldn't sit still. Apparently, um, always you know running around in places. Um, for 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 a guy who has a very very common name, um, you are as uncommon as they come, and I mean that in. The best and the most loving loving of ways uh my friend it's um i'm excited uh to see your campaign gain momentum i am excited to see you grow and to have people in our community um, particularly within the asian american community of uh, district 34 to start getting to know you a little bit better to start understanding who you are um People can judge a lot by a picture. People can judge a lot by a campaign poster, um, and this is the first time that you and I have actually shared conversation. And I, I can confidently say that just in a relatively short two hours of getting to know you, um, I don't care what the issue is. I don't care what the actual thing is. Um, I have a pretty good feeling you're going to always do what's right for the people. Um, and so, in in that way. Um, I think you're doing your parents proud, man, in, in in full circle of all the sacrifices that they've made and all the challenges that you've had with them. Um, they raised a good son. So thank you for your stories. I know it's hard. Um, keep fighting the good fights and um, yeah, uh, come back anytime um, when when things change. If you want to have, if you want to share an update with us, um, might be fun actually to get you and grace on a show together to talk about some of the issues that really matter to our community. Cause there's some overlap there between, um, her district that she's fighting for and, and yours. Um, but yeah, um, really appreciate you coming on, sharing your story, be well, be safe, um, keep fighting the good fight. And ultimately thank you for being you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with David. Um, I think this has been for me one of the most personal and, and, and touching interviews that I've done. Um, so I want to thank you for sticking around to the end and, and listening to all of it. And I, I hope that his message, um, while painful, um, is moving in a much more authentic and personal way for him as he enters. Um, potentially a very new chapter of his life in representing all of us. If this story resonated with you, uh, please do share it with a friend or two uh, who might need to listen to David's story. Um, Reach out to us here at the show, reach out to me, reach out to David. Um, It does mean a lot. And we hope that this investment of time that you made into listening to my conversation with David, um, will have a profound impact on not just your life, but in the lives of those around you. I wanna thank David for everything, uh, for coming on the show and being so authentic and open with us um, and and sharing some stories that um, not so easy to share. As we close out Pride Month here in June, um, I wish everybody happiness. I wish everybody authenticity and the courage to live your life the way you want to, the way you need to, the way you deserve to. We love every single one of you. Thank you for being who you are. Thank you for supporting the show. And I encourage you to come and join us on the show and share your own story. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.